Well, turn in your copy of the Scriptures or scroll in your Bible app to the Gospel of Luke and go to chapter 18. Uh, Luke chapter 18. Uh, We are going to be looking at the first eight verses of Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. Luke 18, beginning in verse 1. If you are physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word and follow along silently as I read aloud Luke chapter 18, verses 1 and following. It's also printed in your outline as well. This is what the word of God says. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? This is the Word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, Jesus starts right in, so we're going to start right in. Point number one, never forget the God-designed connection between prayer and courage. Sometimes we uh, look at parables and Jesus tells the parable, and then later on he explains the parable. You can see this in the Gospel of Matthew, I think it's chapter 13. Parable of the sower is told, later on he explains the parable. Uh, Later on there's the parable of the weeds, then he explains the parable. Not so in this parable. There's a spoiler alert right in verse 1. Do you see that? He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Right out of the gate, we know how Jesus wants us to apply this parable. And one of the things it says is that he told them this parable to the effect that they ought always to pray. Prayer should have a normative presence in your life. It's not just something that we have on the walls of our spiritual walks with the Lord that's like behind glass and it's like in case of fire, in case of emergency, boom, bust into this and then we pray. Not at all. Prayer, as you'll see throughout the scriptures, is normative. It's not like this is a big deal. We should probably call on the heavy artillery and pray. Uh, You can see that prayer encompasses a host of matters and needs and feelings and people throughout the Old Testament and New Testament alike. Here are just a few examples that I want to call to your attention. Abraham prayed that God would make Ishmael his heir. He prayed for God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. He prayed for him to heal Abimelech and his household. David prayed for the recovery of his infant son. He also prayed for Solomon as he assumed the throne. Elijah prayed that the Lord would raise a widow's son from the dead, and Elisha did the same for the Shunammite woman's son. Job prayed for God to forgive his friends. Moses prayed that God would spare Aaron and heal Miriam and lift the plagues from the Egyptians. Prayer is normative throughout the Word of God. It shows up all the time. But also for personal requests. Abraham prayed for God to give him a son as an heir. Abraham's servant prayed that God would make his mission to find a wife for Isaac a success. 
Jacob prayed that God would deliver him from his brother Esau. Moses prayed that he would find favor in God's sight and that God would reveal his glory to him. Hannah prayed for a son. David prayed for help and deliverance from affliction. Hezekiah prayed that God, uh, sorry, Hezekiah prayed that God would spare his life and Jonah prayed that God would not let him drown. David prayed for God to forgive his sins. And that's just the Old Testament and it's just a sampling In the New Testament, Jesus prayed for his disciples. Specifically, he prayed for Peter's faith. He prayed for children who were brought to him. Paul prayed for Philemon, and Philemon prayed for Paul. The early church prayed for Peter's release from prison. Peter prayed that God would raise Dorcas from the dead. John prayed for Gaius' health. The churches that Paul ministered to prayed for him, and they prayed for him. He prayed for them. Epaphras prayed for the Colossian church. Peter and John prayed that the Samaritan would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Scripture commands prayer for civil rulers, for all believers and lost sinners in general, but especially those who persecute believers. As Jesus modeled for us, as his first words on the cross was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they have done. Prayer has a normative presence throughout the Scriptures and should have a normative presence in our lives. You see that wide array of things God wants us to pray about. It's never only for one thing. We never need to think, should I, is this worth praying about? Like, I, I'm not sure. Should I? The answer is always yes. You never have to wonder if it's the right time to pray. The answer is always yes. I put some verses in your outline. Luke 21, 36, Jesus says, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. Paul in Romans 12 says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be what? Constant in prayer. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is talking about putting on the whole armor of God. And he says in verse 18, Praying at all times, not just sometimes, not just when things get rough, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. In Colossians 4 and verse 2, Paul says again, continue steadfastly in prayer. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 17, he says to pray without ceasing. Friends, if prayer does not have a normative presence in your walk with the Lord, you are more unalike than like the people of God. When we look throughout the Scriptures, it's constant. The talking to God, the hearing from God, the conversation that we can have, we can always hear from God in His Word, and we can always have access to God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Why would we not take advantage of that? Why would we not talk to the Lord when anything is on our mind throughout the day, whether it's just something very short or something that's really, really heavy? Why would we not take the time to pray? Prayer should be and ought to be a normative part of the Christian's life. Uh, Luke 18 and verse 1 says, He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray. But he also says they ought always to pray and not lose heart. There really is a connection between prayer and courage. Talking to God and really feeling sustained by His grace and being able to face the things that befall us in life. Consistent prayer will lead to consistent courage. It does not mean you'll never be afraid. 
In fact, in your outline, I quoted the great theologian Sarah LaRuffa. So I had the privilege of teaching at a parenting conference uh, last week. It's why I, I wasn't here at Grace. But I was teaching at a parenting conference with Sarah, and one of the things that she had put in her outline that I thought was so, so helpful, she did a workshop on overcoming the fears of parenting. And she said, when God says, do not be afraid, he is calling us to walk in faith and truth, even if and while we are afraid. That's what courage is. Courage is the ability to walk in faith and truth, even if and while we are afraid. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to take the next step. Even though I'm afraid, I know God is for me. He's not against me. He's going to sustain me. I should have put this in your outline, but I didn't. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 56. I want you to see something in Psalm 56, and then we'll get back to our text today. But if you look in Psalm 56, you're going to see something that uh, David says that I think is very, very helpful uh, to this end. Psalm 56, and look at verse uh, 3. In fact, we'll just start in verse 1. Psalm 56, beginning in verse 1. David prays, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. Then look at what he says in verse 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. He doesn't say, I'm not afraid. I don't get afraid. I walk with the Lord. No, he actually... He doesn't even say, if I'm afraid. He says, what? When? This happens. I I get afraid. I'm David. I'm walking with the Lord. And you say, well, why would you be afraid? And David's like, have you ever faced the Philistines? Like, have you ever seen a giant? Like, 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 I could go on and on and on. He has ample reason to be afraid. But then he puts his trust in the Lord. And the Psalms are records of his constant prayer. David, we know, nowhere near a perfect man. We know that. But he constantly talks to the Lord. He's constantly looking for courage. He's constantly looking for him to be sustained. And he says, when I am afraid, verse 3, I put my trust in you. Verse 4, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Reminds us of Romans 8, right? If God is what? For us. Who can be against us? And so it doesn't necessarily change circumstances But it reorients, it centers you on the truth of God's Word to remind you, not that people aren't against us, they are. Not that life isn't hard, it's very hard. But when we are afraid, we don't just have to sit there afraid. We can put our trust in the Lord. Philippians 4, verses 6 and following says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. That verse, verse 6, there's something you are not to do, and there's something you are to do. Don't be anxious, but you know what the answer to anxiety and fear is? In everything, by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. Why? Verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Do you understand that? The thing you are tempted to be most worried about, most anxious about, because you don't know how it's going to turn out. You can't see the end. You have ample reason to be concerned. Listen to what God's Word says. There is a peace that surpasses understanding. God can give you peace 
That is better than if you knew the answer to that situation. It surpasses understanding you wish you had. And that comes not as a result of knowing the end from the beginning, but of prayer. Instead of being anxious, we can, be, we can make our requests known to God and He gives us peace. And so again, right from the beginning, back to Luke chapter 18, Luke tells us the purpose of this parable is that we would always pray that we would not lose heart, that we would not be discouraged or afraid. Now let's walk through the rest of this parable together. Take a look at verse 2. Jesus said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Now, this certain city reminds us that this is a fictitious story. He doesn't name a city. This didn't actually happen. But Jesus is telling a parable so that we might draw a parallel. And so I always think parable parallel. Jesus is wanting us to draw some truth out of this story, out of this narrative, and for us to understand what he is saying. And so in a certain city, this happened. Now, even though this is a work of fiction, the situation Jesus speaks of is one that everyone would be familiar with because they knew a lot about widows who were very, very needy. And Luke, fun fact, throughout his gospel, gives more attention and ink and time to the poor and the marginalized than any other gospel reader, in particularly, excuse me, any other gospel writer, in particularly widows. And so Jesus described this judge as one who, quote, neither feared God nor respected people. Now, that's an important phrase because in ancient literature, this was a common way to describe those who are basically the most wicked people on the planet, right? For example, the Pharisees were religious, but their piety didn't drive them to love people. They claimed to fear God, but it didn't lead them to respect or love or care for people. On the flip side, you might know people who are ardent atheists with no love for, certainly no fear of or belief in God at all, but they're some of the nicest people you've ever met. I know people who love people, love to help, love to hug, love to host. They love all the things, but they do not love or believe in God. These are people who don't fear God, but respect people. Understand this person. Like, this guy's a real winner. He neither fears God nor gives a rip about people. And so we got the two for right here. He neither feared God, did not believe in, love, care for God. He also didn't care about people. He wasn't moved by worship. He wasn't moved by compassion. No interest in either of the most important commandments in that he didn't love God with any of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he didn't love his neighbor as himself. Instead, he only loved himself. And he was completely comfortable with this. If you skip down to verse 4, he actually says to himself, hmm, though I neither fear God nor respect man. Like he's he's acknowledging this to himself as he decides what he's going to do. Like, though I am the jerk that I am, here's what I shall do, but I shall remain a jerk. Like he's just, he's not ashamed. Not ashamed at all. He's like, even though I don't love God and I hate people, I think I'll do this because it serves me well. He was a piece of work. Add to that, that he was a judge. A judge. Imagine how his lack of love for God and care for people would impact all who came before his bench. We don't have to imagine because we have verse 3. Verse 3, Jesus says, And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, 
give me justice against my adversary. And so apparently this widow had been defrauded in some way, likely a victim of some type of financial fraud, and the fact that she kept coming means she was truly desperate. Over and over and over, again and again and again. Also, in Jesus' time, women only went to the court when there was no man available to plead their case. This is not a place that everybody went. This is a place that men went. And when there was no man to plead your case, no husband, no lawyer, no representative, no family member, you went on your own. The fact that she was there means she had no one to help her. She had no one to protect her. She had no one to look after her. She had no money and she had no body. She represents those who are alone and destitute and powerless and helpless and unloved, uncared for, and all around desperate. Verse 4 says, For a while he refused. The judge refused. The judge was completely indifferent. Like completely unmoved by the widow and her plight. But there's one thing he was moved by, and that was his comfort. And so he changes his tune when he realizes that he says to himself, Self, I think if I grant this request, I won't have to hear from this woman anymore. She'll shut up and I can give my attention to other matters. No doubt matters pertaining to himself and his comfort. And so look at verse 4. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, here it is, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. Why? So that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. One of my greatest pleasures, I try to mention it every week, one of my greatest things and the greatest joys that I get to do is pray for our church family, specifically by name, according to what the Lord lays on your heart. Each and every week, I receive somewhere between 10 and 14 pages of prayer requests from our church family. This past week, I think it was 98 prayer requests that I get to pray for specifically by name. It's one of my greatest joys. I'm so grateful that I get to do that. The ability to pray is shared by anyone who is a believer. The ability to pray for people specifically by name, especially if I have that little headshot next to your prayer request, which means you helped us out and got your picture taken and you really do love me. When I get to do that specifically by name, oh, it's such a joy. It's a next level blessing that's hard to put into words. Praying for your church family again and again and again and again affords me the opportunity to go before the throne of grace and talk to God the way you'd like me to talk to God for you. And it also affords me the opportunity to see the things that are being prayed for and asked for again and again and again and again. Every week, we have a family that asks me to pray for their son's salvation. I pray for him by name every week. They've been praying that for years. I've been praying with them for that for years. If I were a betting man, I bet I'm going to be praying for that again this week. And I will pray again and again and again and again. 
I pray for marriages to be helped, to be reconciled, to be healed, to be restored. I have a person who just about every week asks for prayer for their marriage. They've been praying for this for years. I've been praying this for them for years. If I were a betting man, I would say, odds are I'll be praying for that this week, and I will pray for it again and again and again and again. I pray for people to be blessed with children who are longing to have children, but the Lord has not seen fit to cause that adoption to come through or to cause them to be able to conceive. And I pray again and again and again. I pray for jobs that don't seem to work out. I pray for money that doesn't seem to show up. I pray for physical healing that doesn't happen, and sometimes the condition worsens. I pray for conflict between people to be resolved, and it doesn't. I pray for custody battles that I'm wondering, like, are these are they even kids anymore? Are they now adults? Like, is that how the Lord's going to answer this? It's going to be like, it's like, when will this be settled? I love praying for our church family. I love that you allow me to pray with you again and again and again. It's my joy. It's my privilege. It's my high honor to be able to do that. Please don't stop and please know this. Point number two. Don't make the mistake of thinking unanswered prayer means God is unfair. Don't make the mistake of thinking unanswered prayer means God is unfair. Unanswered prayer can be hard to interpret, right? I mean, when you're praying for something or someone that, and what you're praying like aligns with biblical values, aligns with things that you can actually prove from the Word of God are on God's heart and brings Him great joy. It's hard to understand why those prayers would go unanswered after you've prayed for them again and again and again. How could this person... Your coworker, your spouse, your friend, your parent, your daughter. How could this person remain hellbound and hell deserving for whom I've been praying for years? How could this prayer go unanswered? God must save and God alone. Why would God not just save her? Why won't he heal him? How could God be more glorified? At his funeral, with doctors saying, yeah, it, it was terminal, and it proved to be terminal. How, how could God be more glorified at his funeral versus healing him? So doctors say, yeah, it was terminal, but he's been healed. We don't know what happened. These things don't just happen. It doesn't make sense. And we run to God again and again and again, and again, and it stays the same. How do you interpret unanswered prayer? I mean, there's things you've been praying for for, for years. Or those things where you're like, you know what? I've stopped. I'm kind of done praying for that. Uh, it gets me, I get kind of cantankerous about it if I go to God and ask him again and he just doesn't answer. So you know what? I've just stopped. We're not going to talk about that. I'm not going to talk. Don't bring it up. I'm not going to bring it up. It's fine. Fine. 
Just moving on. Because you don't know how to interpret unanswered prayer. And I just want to say, don't make the mistake of thinking unanswered prayer means that God is unfair. Listen to me. God has a longer view of you than you. Does that make sense? God has a longer view of you than you. Things that make sense to you. I'm not saying you're, you're dumber than you realize. No, I'm not saying that at all. You might be praying for something literally according to the revealed word, the revealed will of God. And you're praying, you're like, I don't, this should be a slam dunk. Like this, save him, heal her, restore this. I mean, this, should, this is a no-brainer. This is what God delights in. Like, why wouldn't he do it? And I just need to remind you, God has a longer view of you than you. He has a longer view of your life, that person's life. God's long game is longer than you could ever imagine. What makes sense to us, even what we could back up from our understanding of biblical text, may not fit into God's long game and how he receives the most glory and how he wants to change you and me for our ultimate good. God has a longer view of you than you. His view of you is longer than your view of you. And so we don't make the mistake of thinking unanswered prayer means God is unfair. Here's a reason why you should keep praying. I want to give you three reasons that I think we can glean from the text. You should keep praying because God won't ignore or refuse you. You should keep praying because God won't ignore or refuse you. In verse 2, we're told that this is a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Verse 4 says, for a while he refused. We're told why the judge in the parable refused the widow. It's because he didn't love God or people. But on the contrary, God actually does love himself very much, and that's not selfish. That's because any, when he loves himself, he loves to glorify himself, and we are most blessed when God glorifies himself. And so unlike the judge, God actually does love himself and does love his children very, very much. He's a good, good father. It's who he is. It's who he always is, and he never changes. And so since he's not like the judge in the parable, when God doesn't grant our prayer request, it isn't ever ignorance or refusal like the judge was. The judge just ignored her. When God doesn't answer my prayer, it's not really unanswered prayer. It's why I put it in quotes. It's not really unanswered prayer. It's just not answered like I would want it to be answered. I'm getting a no where I would like a yes. I'm getting a not yet when I would like it to happen yesterday. Those are answers. I don't get the answers. I may not even like the answers. They don't make sense to me. I would love for the answer to change, and I'd love for it to change yesterday. Please and thank you, but I keep praying, and you should keep praying. Why? Because God is better than this judge and will not ignore or refuse you. He will listen. Here's another reason why you should keep praying. You should keep praying because God won't be worn down into changing His will for your life. That should actually encourage you to keep praying. Look at verse 4. 
Uh, For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now, please understand, at the end of the day, I'm glad the widow received justice. You should be too. But I'm really concerned about how it came about. Are you? See, we have a judge here who issues decisions based on annoyance and personal comfort. Not justice, not truth, not righteousness. At the end of the day, I am glad the widow received justice, finally, and I'm still very concerned as to how it came about. I'm concerned that he refused to grant it. I might be more concerned that he was worn down into granting it. But you know what? I can keep praying to God again and again and again, knowing that he'll never be annoyed or irritated or talked into doing something that he doesn't deem is best for his glory and my good. I can keep praying because his will is his will. It is what it is. And I can take great comfort in my prayer that it won't change his mind because quite frankly, I don't have that kind of pull. And you don't have that kind of pull. And I'm really, really glad because I can pray because I can have the conversation with God. I can lay it at His feet. I can understand that He cares for me, that He loves me deeply. And my relationship can be deepened with Him because He walks with me and He talks with me and He tells me that I am His own. He reminds me of who I am in Him. Praise God He'll listen. And praise God that at the end of the day, He is both listening and in complete control and will always do what is best regardless of what I ask him for. I don't have to wonder like, am I going to sway him? Am I going to be like, what if what I'm asking for really isn't best? Is he going to all of a sudden just be annoyed into granting requests? See, the purpose of this parable is not that God is represented as the judge. The judge is called unrighteous, unholy, evil, and wicked. This parable is not to say God is like the judge. This parable is to say God is so much better than this judge. So much better than this judge that he will not ignore, he will not refuse, and he's not going to be worn down. But instead, you should keep praying because God has actually never, ever, ever ignored his people. Which brings me to that final point, point C. Three reasons why you should keep praying. Point C, you should keep praying because, listen to me, God has never let you down. God has never let you you down. You might hear that and go, that's a brushing with a pretty broad stroke, bro. You have no idea the things I've been praying for years that have not been granted. You have no idea of the good, good things that I want God to do in the lives of my friends, of my own children, of my parents, of my neighbors. You have no idea how many times I've prayed for healing and gone to a funeral. Who are you to stand there and say, God has never let me down? He hasn't answered your prayers in the way you wish or even still want him to right now. So pray and do so again and again, and again, and again. But God has never let you down. He's he's never broken a, a promise. Friends, I've let people down. 
I've intended to do something and not follow through. I have uh, taken vows to my wife and then acted contrary to them in, 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 in wanting to love and care for her and treat her as, as, as Christ loves the church. I have represented Christ poorly. She has let me down. She has been difficult and disappointing just like I've been difficult and disappointing. You have let people down. You have been let down. God has never let you down. He has never failed you. He has never not delivered on a promise that He has made to you. He has been faithful and will continue to be faithful to you, to His Word, to His character. He has never let you down. He's the best. You see, we covered the purpose of the parable in verse 1 that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. He's better than the judge in this parable. Better. Jesus is contrasting a godless, wicked man with the righteous God Himself. He is so much better than this judge could ever be. That's why He says what He says in verse 6. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Right? This is what the unrighteous judge says. Then in verse 7, he begins to ask these rhetorical questions. Will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? The answer is yes, He will. Of course He will. Will He delay long over them? You think He's going to just, just for His own selfishness, He's going to cause them to come back and come back? Will He delay? No, He won't. He'll not delay one second longer than is best for me and for His glory. Verse 8, he says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And we're reminded, oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. And quite frankly, it sings in harmony with the rest of Scripture. I put some verses in your outline. Genesis 18 and verse 25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Yes, he will all the time, every time. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4, The rock His work is perfect for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. He has a longer view of you and me and life and people than we could ever hope for or imagine. And so we pray. We pray fervently. We pray repeatedly. We go to God again and again and again and again. But we do so knowing He is ultimately in charge, ultimately on His throne, that He limits, orders, controls, and knows all things. And we can go again and again and again knowing He'll not refuse us. He will always do that which is for our good and for His glory. What about you? When have you been tempted to believe God has let you down. You're like, I, he's good. He's just not great. He's all right. He would be better if he answered this prayer in this way. I love him. I would really sense his love for me if he answered this prayer that I've been praying again and again and again. You see, the enemy would love for you to think that your heavenly Father is a lot more like this judge. He's just kind of sitting around, aloof, 
He knows what's on your heart. He knows what's on your mind. You probably shouldn't talk to him. Why, why bother talking to him? You're going to really make the trip again? There's other things you can talk about. The enemy would love for you to believe that God is unfair, not looking out for your good. It's what he started saying in the garden, right? Did God really say you shouldn't eat of the tree? I think it's, God just knows you're going to be wise. He's not looking out for your good. And then you get tempted into thinking, you know what? He has let me down. Friends, God has never let you down. Never, ever think that your view on the situation is all there is to it because God in heaven is like, oh, oh, child, oh, son, oh, daughter. I mean, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man what I've planned for, for those who love him in the next life. Even, even in this life, I've got, I'm on it. God's like, I'm on it. I, I'm working in it. I'm working through it. I'm not ignoring you. I hear you. But I can't answer that prayer right now. I can't do that right now in the way you want me to. But I'm on it. I'm in it. I see it. And I love when you talk to me. But trust me. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. Jesus says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It seems like kind of a random way to end the parable, right? Like, wait, what? Like, wait, what, what, why did he go all end times on us? But that's actually not random at all. The parable comes right after Luke 17. And so, uh, we said, we say this fairly often, the, the the chapter numbers, the subject titles, the verse numbers, that's just a mechanism for navigating around the Scriptures. But in reality, you have to understand that Luke 17 ends on verse 37. Luke 18 begins in verse 1, but it's really one flow of thought. One flow of thought. And so right after Jesus said what He said in verse 37, He told them a parable. And so this is all in the context of His second coming. And so we have to remember that also, that there is ample biblical precedent for praying to God over and over and over and over again. This certainly says that, but it's also reminding us we pray to God over and over and over again knowing the bigger picture that He is coming back. This world is not our home. We are citizens of another kingdom. And so while we really do genuinely care about what we're praying about, we also are just like, but Lord, would you just come back and take me home? Lord, would you come back and just make it all better? Would you rule? Would you reign? I want you to make this better. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. But oh, when you come back, I can't wait for it all to be made right. And so Jesus ends this parable saying, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Which brings us to our final point. You need to decide if God will find you among the faithful when He returns. You need to decide if God will find you among the faithful when He returns. What about you? Let's put it this way. 
If the Lord returned on Tuesday, the Tuesday that just passed, would He have found you faithful? That doesn't mean would He have found you being perfect. I always say that. It's not about perfection. He's not, God does not hope for you to be perfect. He will make you perfect when He makes you perfect in heaven. But if He returned on Tuesday, would He have found you faithful? Whether you were at work, at school, at home, out and about, whatever you were doing on Tuesday, if Christ had returned, would He have found you faithful in that you were living in light of eternity? Whatever you were doing, you realize it's not actually all about the here and now, all about what I'm doing right now. But you had eternity in mind. That doesn't mean if you're in the store and you picked up a head of lettuce, you're like, this reminds me of the globe of the world. Like, no, 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 we're not going to get crazy here. But you just realize I'm doing what I'm doing now, but it's not all about the here and now. I am working this job and doing it to the best of my ability, but this is not, I'm not putting like all my stock in what I'm doing here and now. I'm raising these kids. I'm making this grade. I'm graduating. I'm excited, but it's not all about the here and now. I have a greater purpose I live for a greater kingdom that is not of this world, and I am being faithful to God, trying my best to please Him as I live this life. Or in between Sundays, do you become all about whatever you're doing in between Sundays? 168 hours in a week, about 75 to 90 minutes every week, I remember that I'm a Christian when I come to church. But then, like when you go home, it's all about the job. It's all about the situation. It's all about the here and now. Your eternal perspective gets narrowed down to whatever you're facing right then and now. And you forget that this world is not our home. That doesn't mean we don't care, but we don't put all of our eggs in the basket of my life right now on Tuesday. We live for something greater. We do our best to be well-pleasing to Him because we care more about what He thinks of us than anything. What about you? Will you be found among the faithful when He returns? Are you seeking in general to be well-pleasing to Him who died, who was buried, who rose from the grave, and is coming again? If you're not a Christian, uh, if you are not a, a believer, if you are interested in God but not really, or you're just here because you're passing through or you're visiting or you lost a bet or something, whatever reason brings you into this room, understand you're represented in the audience that Jesus had. Uh, when Jesus is talking, he has some people who are there because they're all in. Like, That's my man. I'm, I'm, I believe him. And you have some people who are like, I'm here to kill him if I get a chance. I hate him. I'm against him. And then you have people who are somewhere in between. I like him. I'm a little concerned about him. I'm trying to, I'm seeking. I'm, I'm curious. If you are not among those who love Jesus and who believe on him for salvation, if you are not a Christian, you need to know that you too need to decide if God will find you among the faithful when He returns. And I just want to be honest with you, you're running out of time. You're, you're, today you are closer than you were yesterday to either the Lord's return or your appointment with death. And so you need to decide 
whether or not you'll be faithful when one of those two things happen and you are, in fact, running out of time. When Paul spoke at the Areopagus and he reasoned with great philosophers and thinkers of his day, uh, in Acts 17, in your outline, he said this, the times of ignorance God overlooked. The times of ignorance God overlooked. You're always, you're always responsible, right? You're always responsible for who you are before the Lord. You're always responsible for the choices you make. But there could have been a time when you would be ignorant of these things. You're ignorant of the Gospel. You would still be responsible. And what Paul is calling to mind is, you know what? The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. All people everywhere to repent. Because He has... Fixed today, verse 31, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You may be here, not a believer. I want to let you know you've even experienced the common grace of God right now in the fact that your life has not ended, in the fact that you are able to enjoy life and sunshine and all these things and and that's great but the greatest grace that god has shown you is by being patient and kind with you by allowing you to hear the gospel preached to you yet again by allowing you to be invited to believe in him yet again because you have not died yet and it is still not too late that's what the bible means when it says today is the day of salvation say why is today the day of salvation excellent question because you're not dead because you are alive, because you are breathing. Today is the day of salvation. And there is salvation in no one else other than Jesus Christ. You need to decide how you would answer that question that Jesus asks at the end of Luke 18. When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Will He find people who are anxiously awaiting for His return and excited to see Him? Will you be among those people? 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 and following says this, Working together with Him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't just sit here and nod to the Gospel and be like, yeah, that's, that's important, but I got, I got things I got to do. I got, there's other things that are on my mind, but yeah, that's, yeah, I heard it again. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Verse 2, for He says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's now. It's not eventually. It's now. And it's not about a big group event. It's between you and God. For you to look to God and say, I believe I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. I believe that God the Father took His payment as penalty for my sin. I believe that it was enough, and I believe it's been paid in full. And I believe He was buried, and I believe He rose again. And I believe that my sin has been paid for through Christ. I believe that because He rose from the grave, I too will rise, and that He's coming back. And when He's coming back to answer Jesus' question, yes, I'll be among the faithful. Yes, I'll be among the people. If He comes back before He takes me home, yes, I'll be excited to see Him. And so we go to the Father again and again and again and again with all that's on our hearts and all that's on our minds. 
because we realize he's a good father. He's never let us down. He is listening. He does care. And oh, praise God, he's coming back. And we can't wait for him to make it all right where we will worship him face to face again and again and again and again. Father in heaven, we are so glad that you are way better than the judge in this story. Uh, Lord, you are way better. You are a perfect judge. You are righteous and true. And Lord, you are slow to anger. You evidence that by allowing us to continue to live, by waiting for people to respond to your gospel. Lord, I pray that those of us who know you, oh God, would you help us to live for you in light of that day? That we would live today in light of the day that our Savior returns. And Lord, would you call people to yourself today? Lord, would you call men and women, young and old, people who have been brought up in the church their whole life and people who might be hearing the gospel for the very first time, Lord, would you cause them to realize today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that they can come to you. Today is the day that they can be saved. And Lord, would you glorify yourself through the salvation of your people for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.